0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue a series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The sermon was preached by Pastor Richard Jensen on January 31, 2021, during the morning worship service. The sermon's title is Hardened Hearts and discusses Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site LI.net and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Hear now the inspired word of God. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, but encouraging one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we prepare to look into your word, our prayer is simple, and that is that you'd be pleased to bless the preaching of it. We pray, Father, that as it goes forth, that just as you have promised, your word will not return void, but accomplish every purpose for which you send it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. i begin with a question again today. Who was was your favorite villain in literary or the silver screen? Shakespeare certainly had some great villains. Lady Macbeth is one of my favorite villains. She had definitely a hard heart. Iago from Othello, if you remember that story, and Shylock from The Merchant of Venice. He literally wanted his pound of flesh. But Charles Dickens, I think, stands out in the way he described his his villains. Uriah Heep from David Copperfield, for instance, He's described in the book as a cadaverous man. And I quote, who had hardly any eyebrows and no eyelashes and eyes of a red brown so unsheltered and unshaded that I remember wondering how he went to sleep. He was high-shouldered and bony, dressed in decent black with white, a white wisp of a neckcloth buttoned up to the throat and had a long, lank skeleton hand. That's a villain. Perhaps you've worked for someone like that. (laughs) Someone who had no compassion on you. A hard-hearted person is capable of many cruel things. I remember sitting across the desk from a person. This man had the hardest heart I had ever seen, and it was even reflected in his eyes. In fact, I remember the scene from Jaws where the captain is, is describing the sharks that attacked him. He says, cold eyes like a doll's eyes. That's what this man was like, cold, black eyes. He was a professional hitman, cold-blooded killer. He was responsible for somewhere between 20 and 30 deaths that we knew of. It's a hard heart. The text for this morning... Warns us not to harden our hearts. Remember the context. The book of Hebrews was written uh, to the first century Jewish Christians first, and specifically to show them that Christ was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Remember, the, the first century Jews had a tendency to lapse back into the Jewish rituals. And the present context is to prove the superiority of Christ over Moses. And remember, the Jews had a high regard for Moses, but Moses was a servant of the Most High God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. As we proceed in our text, we come to an admonition or a warning. Look at verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, now, we see that word, therefore, and we've learned by now that when we see that, we need to go back, stop and go back and see what it, what preceded it. In other words, what the Holy Spirit is telling us is to pay attention to this. Uh, the next phrase in verse 7 is entering. It says, just as the Holy Spirit says. Notice that the author of this epistle affirms the doctrine of inspiration as a matter of fact. He's not trying to prove it. Uh, He he doesn't seek to prove it even. But he presupposes it uh, as he refers to Psalm 95 as the words of the Holy Spirit. Now the writer of this epistle quotes a large portion of Psalm 95. And since we have such a large quotation, I've decided to to look at the whole of Psalm 95 to give us the context for the admonition we find in in the book of Hebrews. And then next week we're going to continue with Psalm 95. We can't look at the whole psalm even in one one meeting. Uh, First, let's look at the authorship of this psalm. And it's in question. There's a lot of different opinions over who wrote it. Many of the older writers attribute it to David because the way it's some technical reasons. Others put it uh, later, possibly even in the Maccabean period. Spurgeon was one who called it a Psalm of David. Spurgeon was pretty strong on that, as a matter of fact. But we can't really be sure. Uh, Something else that's interesting, this is one of those psalms without a title in the scripture. Now, many psalms are described in scripture as psalms of ascent or psalms of praise, etc., those type of things. But this one has no such title. But because of its contents, Spurgeon called it a psalm of provocation. Then we also look at the place of this psalm in the book of Psalms. Samuel Horsley, who was a an 18th century scholar and actually a mathematician and physicist who was also a, a bishop in the Church of England. Uh, he has a, an interesting take on I'm going to quote him from, this is from the Treasury of David by Spurgeon, but uh, this is a, a quotation from Samuel Horsley. This is what he says. These six psalms, Psalm 95 to 100, form, if I mistake not, <coughs> one entire prophetic poem. Uh, cited by St. Paul in the Epistle to the Hebrews under the title of the introduction of the firstborn into the world. Each psalm has its proper subject, which is some particular branch of the general argument, the establishment of the Messiah's kingdom. The 95th Psalm asserts Jehovah's Godhead and his power over all nature and exhorts his people to serve him. In Psalm 96, all nations are exhorted to join in his service because he comes to judge all mankind, Jew and Gentile. In the 97th Psalm, Jehovah reigns over all the world. The idols are deserted. (coughs) The just one is glorified. In the 98th Psalm, Jehovah has done wonders and wrought deliverance for himself. He has remembered his (coughs) his mercy toward the house of Israel. He comes to judge the whole world. In the 99th, Jehovah seated between the cherubim in Zion the visible church reigns over all the world to be praised for the justice of his government and in the 100th psalm all the world is called upon to praise Jehovah the creator whose mercy and truth are everlasting there's several ways to di- to divide this psalm but i i prefer the one that Spurgeon used verses 1 to 5 form the first part, which is an invitation to worship God with reasons. Verses 6 to 11 form the second part, which is an invitation to worship God with warnings for disobedience. And in the second half, which is what is quoted in Hebrews, the the writer addresses how the Israelites continually tried God's patience, Especially in the wilderness during those 40 years. Uh, that's why Spurgeon referred to it as the Psalm of Provocation. So let's look at the first part of the Psalm. Uh, again, we're, we're not looking particularly at Hebrews now, we're going back to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with Psalms. We are exhorted to come and worship the Lord. It's the way the Psalm opens with these words. Oh, oh, come. We could probably do a whole sermon right there in those two words, couldn't we? The great invitation of our Lord is to come to him. Jesus said something very similar in recorded in Matthew's gospel in chapter 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus told a woman by the well that God seeks worshipers. In John chapter 4, verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people... The Father seeks to be his worshipers. Worship for the Christian is at the invitation of God himself. Then notice the next words. We are entreated to sing for joy. Worship for the Christian is a joy, not merely a duty. It is a duty, to be sure, because we are commanded to worship him, but for the one whose heart has been changed... Worshiping God is a joy. I'm, I have to admit, I'm somewhat troubled when I speak to someone who claims to be a Christian. In fact, pretty certain is a Christian. <laughs> and they look at honoring the Sabbath day as a burden. Coming to church is something that I, I have to do. And as bothered as I am by those who would forsake the Sabbath, I'm more troubled by those who don't see the worship service as a delight and a joy. Isaiah 58, verse 13. Listen to this description. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, a holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, speaking your own word. Then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." When the invitation to worship is given, the Christian runs, he hastens to the worship service because it is a joy for him, it is a delight. But notice that he is singing for the Lord. How often do congregations do things and sing songs or do certain things for the pleasure of men. We're told that we must have a certain type of music or singing uh, to keep a certain group of people in the church. We need to sing certain songs for the young people, certain songs for those people who are older than me. (laughs) I fit in the young person's category, at least up here. Just ask my wife. we're putting the focus in the wrong place. Our singing is for the Lord. The second part of the verse says, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. The Hebrew verb that is used for shout joyfully can either be accomplished by voices or by instruments, by the way. It's an interesting word. The connotation is the mingling of voices and instruments. And contrary to what some say, the Psalms show us the importance of music in worship. Singing with instruments, all to the glory of God. Verse 2, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So that verse alludes that this is referring to temple worship. The presence of God was represented by the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Covenant. And the glory cloud filled the temple above the mercy seat. So we are talking about coming into the presence of God for special worship. In the New Covenant, God's presence is where? Wherever the saints are gathered. where two or three are gathered together, and there I am in their midst. So this psalm is very applicable to our worship services today, to the service that we're in right now. So first we come with, with thankfulness, the psalm says. What, what Christian? I don't care what your circumstances are. I don't care what your health is. I don't care what your emotional state. I don't care what, what you have endured in this life. What Christian can't come into the presence of God with thanksgiving in his heart? If he gave you nothing but your salvation, the Christian is to be known by his heart of thankfulness. And then we praise him with psalms, and the this, this scripture plays an important part in our worship. It, it guides our worship. It keeps it from going astray in one direction or another. It prevents our our carnal inclinations from taking over in the worship service. Jesus said that true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Worship should be enthusiastic, but solemn at the same time. We can be joyful and yet respectful. Spurgeon says, it is to be feared that this is too much overlooked in ordinary services. People are so impressed with the idea that they ought to be serious that they put on the aspect of misery and quite forget that joy is as much a characteristic of true worship as solemnity itself. It's unfortunate that in our society that many churches have actually gone to the other extreme. The joy and enthusiasm has led to an uncontrolled and undisciplined service, and there's no solemnity at all. The worship service should be reverent, respectful, and solemn, but it should also be a time of joy, as the participants in worship should be enthusiastic. There's nothing wrong with a, an appropriate amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> or hallelujah. <laughs> somebody asked me, Pastor, what, what would you do if somebody raised your hands? raise their hands during the worship service. Praise God. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands. Let them be holy hands. And now the reasons for worship, part one. Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. You know, most of the neighboring nations of Israel were polytheistic. That means they had, they had many gods. But they were also henotheists. That means they believed in regional gods. Gods had certain power, god of the hills, the god of the valley, those type of things. This thinking came into and infected the Israelites as well. So the psalmist here is asserting that God is the great God. God is not a local God. He is transcendent. He is above all such false gods. His power is not limited to one geographical area or another. Our God is sovereign over the whole universe. There is no other God but him. And he is also the creator of all things. Verse 4, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. He's the creator God, and he sustains all things. He created all things, and he keeps all things running. He is the omnipresent God. There is not a place you can go and get away from him. And David recognized that as he penned it in Psalm 139, starting in verse 70. He says, where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea... Even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. So we are exhorted to worship God for who he is and what he has done. (coughs) And the psalmist makes a very good case for us. Remember the context of the psalm. It was written for the Jews to remind them who who is the God that they worship. And it serves the same purpose for us today. <clears throat> this psalm is as relevant for us today as it was the day it was written. We need to be encouraged to take a biblical view of worship. We need to be reminded of the reasons we worship God. We need to be reminded that to honor The Sabbath and the worship of God is a delight and a joy. And if it is not, then there is something wrong in us, not in God. It is a high privilege to be called the children of God and to be given the ability to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the positive side of this psalm. The psalmist continues with warnings for failure to worship. Verse 6, come let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our maker. Now notice, it gives the invitation again. It's the second time. We saw it a little bit earlier, and now we see it again. We're reminded this time that he is our maker. We owe our very existence to him. So there is to be humility in worship. Here again we see the solemnity we talked about earlier. And notice the posture that is spoken of, bowing and kneeling. Both are signs of humility. So much worship today is done in pride and arrogance. So much is man-centered and man-pleasing instead of humility before our great God, and our King. And before we're admonished, the the writer actually gives us another reason for worship. Look at uh, verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Uh, He tells us, remember who you are. And we should pause and reflect on the depth of the meaning of this verse. The very essence of our covenant with God Is that He is our God, we are His people. That is the reason that Christ came and died on the cross. He secured redemption for His people. And the psalmist uses pastoral language to describe this relationship. We are the people of His pasture, we are the sheep of His hand. We are those who enjoy a special relationship with our God. Now, God is everyone's creator. And and he is everyone's sovereign, whether they acknowledge it or not, he is. He governs everyone's affairs. He is the judge of all men. But he's not everyone's heavenly father. He is the father of those whom his son has purchased with his own blood. Those who are his through faith are called his son's. But as many as believed on him, to them he became became sons of God. We are the sheep of his hand, the people of his pasture. What a blessed position to be in. All of that is the context for the quotation that the writer of Hebrews puts forth in this chapter 3. This relationship of worship as a special people of God is necessary to understand the admonition that follows. Now, the, the Jews understood this very well. They, they relished their favored position they had as God's chosen people. So now comes the admonition. Today, if you would hear his voice, let me just pause there for a minute. Do you hear the voice of the Lord? It's an important question. Jesus said in John 10, 20, 70, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they never shall never perish, and no one shall, shall snatch them out of my hand. The one who hears the voice of God is his sheep. He belongs to Christ. Now, remember, this was written to the Jews who were part of the covenant nation of Israel. And the warning goes to them who... Hear his voice. How does one hear the voice of God? Boy, here's another whole sermon, isn't it? The only infallible source of God's word is the Holy Scriptures. And we'll be addressing that in the not-too-distant future in the book of Hebrews, exactly how we hear the voice of God. I'm not talking about hearing voices in your head or burning in your bosom or anything such as that. But you hear the voice of God when you read the scriptures and obey it. But for now, remember that the Israelites, they had been entrusted with the word of God. And notice there's a sense of urgency in the warning. He says, today, if you hear my voice, today, yesterday has come and gone. Tomorrow may not come. The Lord is speaking today. Listen to him. Today. And what is the word of warning? Verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Uh, The word of God is full of stories about those who hardened their hearts. Cain hardened his heart and sin was crouching at the door to seize him. Pharaoh hardened his heart and brought destruction not only upon himself but his entire army. And, of course, in reference to the Psalm, the Israelites at Meribah and Massah. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah, in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. The Psalmist says the Israelites tested God, they tried him. In other words, they provoked him. Remember, Spurgeon called this a psalm of provocation. We read the account of Mirabah and Massa earlier this morning from Exodus chapter 17 and how they quarreled with Moses and Moses had to strike the rock to give them water. Let me put this in context. God had just delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. They prayed to be delivered, and he miraculously answered their prayers. Remember the ten plagues and the last of them, the slaying of the firstborn, and Israelites were untouched. Then Pharaoh chases them, and with their backs to the wall, God parts the Red Sea, and they walk through on dry land. And now they speak against the Lord because they have no water. And God is not pleased with their lack of faith. Moses named the place at Rephidim, Massa and Meribah. Massa means testing. And Meribah means quarreling or a place of strife. But the psalmist continues. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said... They are people who err in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Is that what the psalm says? For 40 years I loathed their sin? For 40 years I loathed that generation. What a stinging rebuke. But it wasn't just at Rephidim that they displeased God. It was during the entire 40 years. God had delivered them, provided for them, gave them the promise of a great land to inherit. And all they do is complain and continually disobey the Lord. And he says that he loathed them for 40 years. These are the people who had the greatest advantage of any people because they are Jews and are part of the covenant nation with the very oracles of God. And God says they are wrong in their hearts. They don't even know his ways. Remember, when it talks about the heart, it's talking about your whole inner person. It's who you are. And God says these people are not really his. And the proof of it comes as they continually disobey him in the wilderness. And you know many more of the stories of their continued disobedience. Now, here's a very important point we must make. And it's a crucial point for our study in Hebrews. And missing it will lead to many errors in our study. We know that not all the Israelites were saved. We know that. Paul tells us that very clearly. In Romans 9, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. The physical nation of Israel was a picture, a type of the spiritual and true Israel. And their physical journey from Egypt to the promised land is teeming with spiritual truth and types and examples and symbolism about the spiritual journey of the church. And Paul picks up on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he says this, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. So just as the psalmist exhorts the Israelites not to harden their hearts, the writer to the Hebrews exhorts his fellow Jewish Christians not to harden their hearts. And the danger that loomed over Israel during those 40 years was relevant to them. God loathed the disobedience of the Israelites, and they wandered around and never entered, that whole generation never entered the land. And that's what we see in verse 11. The psalmist says, Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. The last straw, as it were, for the Israelites was when they refused to go into the land of Canaan. They lacked the faith to believe the promise of God. They chose instead to listen to the ten disobedient spies. And God was so angry with them that he swore that they would not enter the land of Canaan. They had hardened their hearts to the extent that God cast them off. And that is what the warning the writer to the Hebrews uses in this third chapter. And he says, remember what the Holy Spirit said to your ancestors. The same warning goes for you today. Do not harden your hearts as they did. Having a hard heart always brings consequences. We see it even in the literature. You see all of those villains came to some sort of dastardly end. In family relationships, it always brings estrangement and heartache. That professional killer that I told you about was sentenced to life in prison. He died trying to escape. It's a funny story. If you want to hear it, I'll tell you later. Funny story about a death. You you can tell I was a homicide detective. (laughs) But hardening your heart to God has ultimate consequences, as this psalm has shown us. But this psalm and the message in Hebrews isn't just for the Jews of Christ's time or or the, the Jews of David's time. We have examined the context of this psalm, which figures so prominent in these two chapters of Hebrews. And we will see exactly how the writer applies uh, the rest of the psalm in the next few weeks. But don't miss the application for us so far today. As I told you in the very beginning of this study, I believe that the book of Hebrews is extremely relevant for us in America today and what's going on. This country prides itself on its humanitarian efforts. And buzzwords are thrown around tolerance and acceptance. Yet most people in this country think they're going to heaven because they think they're good people. Yet they have hardened their hearts to God. They have not obeyed him. They have tested him and tried him at every turn. We could point out our maribers and, and masses all over, all around this country. But the question this morning is, how about you? You may have grown up in a Christian home. You may have... Memorize half the Bible or the whole catechism. But the question is, where is your heart? When the invitation comes to worship, do you call it a delight? Is there a spring in your step as you're coming into this building to meet with the saints before our great God? Are you one of the sheep of his pasture? If you have hardened your heart, the word of God says you will not enter his rest. You cannot be a Christian and follow your own way. The message of Psalm 95 speaks to each one of us here this morning. Come, let us worship the Lord. Do not harden your heart. Listen to the voice of God today. Yesterday's come and gone. There may not be a tomorrow. So today... The Lord is speaking today. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, that message is still for you. Today, the invitation is to come. Acknowledge your sin. Repent and call upon the only one who can save. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do bow before you once again and how we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King, who gave himself to die for our sin, that we might have eternal life and fellowship with you. Father, I pray that you would change hearts this morning, that you would do that radical heart surgery, take away these hardened, stony hearts, give us hearts of flesh that we might repent believe we pray this in Jesus